What's your name? Uh, Reed Ryan. What's your current occupation? How long have you done it? Uh, I'm the president of the Houston Astros, and I'm going into my seventh season. Before that, what did you do? Uh, I started uh, Ryan Sanders Baseball, which owned the AAA Round Rock Express and the AA Corpus Christi Hooks. Coming up on this edition of Life Around the Seams, our guest is Reed Ryan. Yes, he's the son of Hall of Famer Nolan Ryan. Among the themes of today's podcast, finding your own identity in an industry in which your father is a legend, also the rarity of a minor league baseball executive moving up to the major leagues. All of that and more is next. This is Life Around the Seams. Former Major League pitcher Jim Bouton once wrote, You spend a good piece of your life gripping a baseball, and in the end, it turns out, it was the other way around all the time. Welcome to Life Around the Scenes, a podcast about baseball people who have interesting stories from between the lines, and sometimes even more interesting stories outside the lines. Here's your host, Josh Sushan. All right, Reed. Thanks so much for joining me. This is a, this is a thrill. We're here at the baseball winter meetings in Las Vegas, and uh, I'm just totally honored to be here. This is really exciting for me. Yeah, thank you for the opportunity, Josh. Appreciate it. All right, so let me start with this. At what age do you realize my dad's kind of a big deal? Yeah, it was when he was playing for the Angels, and we were living in Villa Park, California, and we had career day, and he came to the class with a bunch of equipment and you know uh, baseball uniform and everything, and the kids were all going nuts, and I think that's when I realized, oh wait, maybe my dad does something different that other kids' dads, you know, doesn't don't don't do. How old are you at this time? Probably second grade, second, third grade, first grade, somewhere in there. Okay, and then how does that change your outlook when you realize, okay, my dad's on TV, people know my dad, my dad, people want his autograph, they want photos taken with him. Well, what was interesting was we grew up in a small town south of Houston. You know, it's about 30 minutes from downtown Houston. And he played with the Mets when I was born, and then he was traded to the Angels. And the games are happening on the West Coast, even though he had won a World Series with the Mets. They're not on TV. There's no real national TV other than, like, you know, Saturday afternoon baseball. There's no cable TV. The newspapers normally don't pick up the stories the day after because it's so late. So when we would come back to Texas in the off season, I mean, it was just like we were normal people that are living in the same town we grew up in. Um, it really wasn't until he signed with the Houston Astros as the first million-dollar player in 1980, and our town like threw a parade for us and had a pep rally and all this kind of crazy stuff that sort of being Nolan Ryan's son, the ball player, kind of came into existence. How much pressure when you played? Was it ever, well, of course he's good, that's Nolan Ryan's son, or you know, was there any sort of pressure from parents or your fellow uh, uh, teammates? You know, so that's the common theme, was if you did good, people said, oh, well, of course, that's Nolan Ryan's son, and if you didn't live up to the expectations they thought, they were like, oh, he's nowhere as good as his dad. And so early on, you know, and my mom and dad made, you know, myself and my brother and my sister all feel really good about whatever it was we chose to do. And that, you know, you can't compare yourself to Nolan Ryan or Roger Clemens or Andy Johnson. All you can do is just be the best you that you can be. And my mom was a state tennis champ. And so we were a very athletic family. Uh, all three of the kids played college athletics. Um, and, and so there was pressure, but at the same time, my mom and dad made it so easy to just be who we were that I never really felt any pressure. You know, it's funny. Uh, Tony Gwynn Jr. played for the Isotopes. I remember talking to him about it. There was some day that there was some fan who was heckling him. Oh, Tony, you'll never be as good as your dad. And I remember thinking, of course not. His dad's one of the greatest hitters of all time. There might be five people on planet Earth who are as good as his dad, right? Well, there was lots of ragging. I mean, baseball is filled with, you know, ragging and fans yelling and opponents yelling. And when I was playing, it was really bad. And in high school was probably the worst, you know, players and, and parents and other people yelling stuff. And one time I got really mad. I was playing third base, and this kid was just, like, all over me. 
same stuff. You know, you're not as good as your dad. It was the milkman, you know, just all this stuff. And so finally I just, like, walked over to the dugout and I go, yeah, my dad plays ball. So what? What's your dad do? Yeah, I don't – yeah, exactly. You're not even going to say it, are you? I'm like, so what do you got a problem with me? And I got right up in his face, and after that, word kind of spread, and then nobody ever ever really did that again. <laughs> there you go. I love it. All right, so as I'm doing some research, uh, I saw that summer of 1981, you're about nine years old, and you're about to leave on a road trip with your dad, and the article said that you darted out into the street and got hit by a car, and your spleen was removed. Tell yeah, me. so that's not exactly correct there. Uh, it was the summer of 1979. We were living in uh, in Anaheim. He was actually in Boston on a road trip, and I was playing in the front yard some baseball with some kids, and some kind of bullies came down and started kind of, you know, trying to grab our uniforms and rip them off of us and so on and so forth. And so I broke away from this kid and tried to dart back across the street, and a girl rounded the corner and, and hit me, and I ended up losing my left kidney my spleen, and I broke my femur and ended up being in the hospital for like eight to ten weeks. How did that impact your your baseball playing and just because of your like, appreciation of life at that age? Yeah, I mean, really, it's it's a part of a testimony I give uh, a lot. You know, it was kind of the first time that I really spoke to God and, and realized that, look, you know, I was saved for a reason here and that I have, you know, a responsibility to go out and and you know achieve and accomplish some things in life because not everybody gets a second chance uh, so that was very important to me it also gave me uh, appreciation for when you come out of a hospital you're in traction you're in a body cast you're mobilized for so long just what a joy it is to be able to compete on the field in any sport the lasting effects were that I never was able to play football with one kidney my parents wouldn't let me um, and that's tough growing up in Texas mm-hmm. especially where you have a ton of quarterbacks, and and our quarterback was this great kid named Teddy Villanueva, but he was like five foot six and could barely see over the line. And I'd have these redneck parents, and I would go, "Man, what are you scared to play?" I'm like, "I have one kidney." You know, when you're the pitcher and you're the basketball player and you're, you know, the kind of the most athletic kid in school, that kind of stuff. You know, what are, what are you scared? I'm like, "Yeah, I wish I could be out there, but I can't." But uh, I would have loved to have played football. So you couldn't play football, but you basically grew up at the Astrodome. What are some of your memories of? Growing up, being around the Astros and being around major leaguers every day. Yeah, I tell everybody, I got to live every kid's dream. Literally flying charters and taking batting practice every day and having a uniform and a locker. And we had a really good group of players' kids. Uh, Jose Cruz Jr., who ended up having a great major league career, was probably the best of the group. Uh, Phil Garner's son, Eric, played in college. My brother, Reese, played in college. Uh, Joe Negro's son, Lance, played in the major leagues. Um Enrique Cruz got the AAA. So we had this whole crew of kids that were really good players themselves. Darren Sutton played uh, professionally. And so we would actually have our own games underneath the dome. We'd be in the batting cage. We'd be running around. uh, And it was cool to grow up every day with a group of kids that love baseball, kind of pre-video games, all that kind of stuff. Uh, But it was fun. Uh, Taking road trips was great. Um, You know, my dad would give me his meal money. I'd go to the back of the plane and play (laughs) cards with guys. And, uh, you know, I ended up always enjoying the guys that were kind of the journeymen, 25th man on the roster. Uh, You know, they would kind of, hey, it's good business to be nice to Reed Ryan. So they'd always buddy up with me, you know. How much of the, speaking of business, the business side of baseball and how a, a, a team markets itself, how a team sells merchandise, as a kid growing up at the Astrodome, were you cognizant at all of any of that, or was it just there's a game that's going on? No, I was very aware of everything within the world of baseball. Um, you know, I can't say that I grew up wanting to be, you know, the president of the Houston Astros. I grew up wanting to be a major league baseball player. And I was fortunate enough to get to play in college. I played at the University of Texas and then transferred to TCU. Uh, I was drafted, played a couple years in the minor leagues. Um, You know, I have a real appreciation for everything it takes to put a game on and all of the people that work within the game. And so when my, you know, jersey was no longer in my locker and I realized I had to do something else with my life, I worked for a short time with the Rangers on their television broadcast And I just decided, look, I'm going to go start my own team. I had been at UT when there had been a failed attempt to bring the Phoenix Firebirds to Austin when the Diamondbacks were coming into the Phoenix market. And so I kind of watched that whole thing transpire. And when it fell apart, I said, hey, I can go do this. I I know I can do this. I know this industry inside and out. 
And that's really how I got started. And, and even though today I'm president of business operations for the Houston Astros, I'm really a baseball guy, and I care about the entire, you know, sport uh, – from player development and scouting to sales and marketing to what's the game we're presenting and and how do we get kids to play and how do we engage more fans on social media and television. I really care about the entire, you know, entity of baseball. Speaking of UT, I want to talk about April 1991, exhibition game. Rangers play the University of Texas. You started against your dad. You're a freshman. Your dad's 44. Your mom, Ruth, throws out the ceremonial first pitch. Your brother, Reese, coaches first base for the Rangers. The Texas governor, Ann Richards, is there. The future president, George W. Bush, is there because he owned the Rangers at the time. What are some of your memories of being in, I guess, 18, 19-year-old? And even the tickets, I saw the tickets online. It, it said Ryan versus Ryan, not just Rangers versus Longhorns, but it said Ryan versus Ryan on the ticket stub. Yeah, that was a really cool uh, memory. Um, it was interesting because... We had a really good class at the University of Texas, and I wasn't really much a part of that team. I played in five games and over the course of the year, and it was different back then. We played 30 games in the fall, and then we played 60 games in the spring. But we had some really good players. We had Calvin Murray, who's mm-hmm. you know nephew of Kyler, just won the, the Heisman. Brooks Kieschnick, who was a two-time Golden Spikes Award winner. Um, you know, We had all these guys that, that were really good players. And so it was a – something the University of Texas came up with. It was a big deal for the Rangers. It was a big deal for UT. And obviously it was a marketing deal because I wasn't a prominent member of the University of Texas team. But having said that, it was a fun. I took it as an opportunity to say, look, I'm going to have a great time. I'm going to enjoy this because I may never get to pitch against my dad again. Um, We had a lot of media. They followed me all week to class and all kinds of stuff. So it was really it was interesting to kind of have that spotlight on you. Uh, and then when I went out, I mean, I pitched okay. I think I, they took me out, I think, in the second. I pitched maybe an inning and two-thirds. I gave up a couple of runs. Uh, but then the Rangers ended up scoring, on, if I remember correctly, like 11, 12, 13 runs total and kind of hit everybody around the yard. So it didn't feel too bad. But uh, the highlight for me was, you know, I got to face Gino Petrali and Steve Bouchel and a couple of the other guys that were in that rotation. And then, obviously, to sit that close in the dugout and watch my dad pitch, uh, who was still very much in his prime at that time, and hear our players come back talking about what it was like to face him um, was really cool. And the guys that did get a hit, they're legends to this day. Every time I see them, I'm like, remember when you hit that triple off my dad? And the guy's like, oh, you mean the check swing that just got inside the line? Yeah. As someone who went on to work in minor league baseball where you're trying to put together exhibition games against major league teams at times, and now as a major league executive, who's on, so you've seen it from both ends, what's your appreciation for putting together that type of event back then? Well, I mean, it opened my eyes to a lot of things, and, and that event probably being as intimately involved in it, it, it enabled me to see how an event like that can capture a community and capture the media and capture people's attention. And so the great thing about these exhibition games is that it's about the fans, and you're giving the fans what they want to see. And that's really what the fans wanted to see back then was a guy in his 40s pitching against a kid who was coming up in college, and um, it was Texas versus Texas. So that was really fun. And I think that experience helped me with like the thing we did in San Antonio called Big League Weekend – where we launched the first ever major league games in the Alamo Dome. And, you know, we had 60,000 people over three games or whatever right before I took this job, actually, in 13 with the Rangers. And then, I, you know, my brother took it over from there. But it was fun to be able to put on an event like that or an exhibition game because it means so much to the fans. I swear I'm not going to ask you a lot of questions about your dad, but there's one in particular that I have to ask. August 4th, 1993. The Rangers are playing the Chicago White Sox, and there's some bad blood between the Rangers and White Sox, and a player on the Rangers gets hit, and your dad decides, i got to protect my guys, and he hits Robin Ventura, and Ventura famously charges the mound, and your dad gets him in the headlock and lands a couple of blows. Where were you when that occurred? So this is a really interesting story. Um, I was playing in the Jayhawk League. Um, I had been a two-time Alaskan League player, for the Anchorage Bucks, and it was my dad's last season in 93. And even though Cape Cod and, and the Alaskan League are kind of the elite college summer leagues, 
I said, you know what, I want to go to the Jayhawk League so I'll be fairly close and I'll be able to see my dad in Kansas City and, you know, I'll be, they have a day off, I can come watch him pitch in Arlington. And so it just so happened we had a day off that day. And I ended up going to some of the guys on the team. I was like, hey, anybody want to, you know, drive from Topeka, Kansas down to Arlington for a game? And uh, I had one guy that wanted to go with me, Jeremy Giambi, the guy okay. that didn't yes. slide. Right. Uh, everybody remembers that from the Jeter play. So Jeremy and I jump in the car, and it's like an eight-hour drive, and we literally get to the old Arlington Stadium at the top of that inning. And we had no – I mean, we had not gotten inside the stadium and we literally had just sat down when all of that transpired. And I tell people, had one fan run out of the stands that night, I think it would have been like 30,000 on 25 because (laughs) people were throwing stuff and yelling and they were going nuts. And then – you know, my dad stayed in the game. They didn't kick him out. And he ended up pitching probably six, seven innings. And then we went in the locker room as soon as he got pulled out of the game. And we were in there just giving him high fives and getting the blow-by-blow. Blow. And it was an awesome memory, not only for me, for the state of Texas, for my dad, but also to share that with Jeremy. And whenever I run into him, we always laugh about that. So when you get back to Topeka, Kansas, how many, are, how many of your teammates are mad that they did not go, that they missed this? Well, there's a lot of them. And actually, what's funny is I had Ryan and Damon Miner on that team with me. And, uh, you know, there were you know, some really good ball players that turned out to be on that team. But, but everybody laughed about it, and they thought it was an incredible uh, experience that we got to go down and be a part of that. So this is before cell phones where it's really easy to, to connect with one another. But I'm still curious, how many people come out of the woodwork to try and contact you and say, your dad and what he did, and he hit Robin Ventura, and he, you know? It's still very popular. So my dad's uh, in his early 70s now. He'll be 72 in January. And uh, and so the people of his age group, it's their first thing they love to talk about when I run into them. Because it was basically, back then, for a guy in his 40s, it was, you know, going head-to-head against every guy and across the country in their 20s, and, and they all latched onto it. All right, so let's talk a little bit about your career. You were drafted out of TCU, 17th round by the Rangers in 1994. Draft is not on internet back then. In fact, they only announced the first round back then. Where were you when you found out that you had been drafted? Yeah, so I was really thinking my junior year I would get drafted, and I didn't. And so I had kind of been through the sort of heartache of, like, thinking that you were going to get drafted and then it not happen. Um, But going into my senior year, I had a really good year, and we won the Southwest Conference. We got the regionals, and, you know, I I had a good year. And Kansas City and the Mets and – the Rangers had all said, hey, you know, we're going to draft you. Uh, you know, it may not be the first day. It could be the second day. And so, like you said, no Internet, none of the stuff going on back then. Um, my dad and I were actually fishing down in South Texas on the coast, and I had a pager back then. Okay. And my mom paged me, and I ended up calling her from a cell phone, and she said, hey, the Rangers called, and they drafted you in the 17th round. It was a really cool feeling. It was great. So you report to Hudson Valley in the New York Penn League to start your pro career. What's it like the first time you walk into a clubhouse as a professional after all of those times being in a clubhouse as a kid? Well, it was in a trailer um, to start with. Uh, That was an interesting year. Um, Hudson Valley, which has been a great franchise in minor league baseball, uh, New York Penn League short season A, it was the first year of the club. And they had had a really cold, heavy snow winter and the stadium was not finished. So we worked out the first two days at Marist College, and then the day of the first game, both teams had to warm up in the same bullpen because they had only built one bullpen. (laughs) And we had trailers in a parking lot that was not paved, full of potholes. So it was less than what you would imagine for your your pro debut. Um, But what was funny about that game, uh, they sold out every game. It was like 5,000 fans a night. And it was super popular. Um, It also happened to be when the strike happened during the middle of the season, and so we ended up getting a lot of media attention. But that first game I pitched, we had a catcher uh, named uh, Tim Colley who's been a bullpen catcher and a scout. And what's interesting about that team is we had like five or six guys that went on to be, well, Mike Hills, the president of the Marlins, he was on that team. So we had two major league team presidents on that team. We had like three or four other guys that have coached at the major leagues or minor leagues. It was just a really interesting team of guys. So the older guys like Tim that had come out of uh, extended spring, 
I roll up and they're like, hey, we're playing the Expos. And they're like, that guy over there, man, he's been running our guys over and he was, he, he was you know, he plays dirty and all this stuff. Um, you got to drill him. And these are older guys. And I'm like, first game, I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, whatever. So I drill this guy and then he like starts kind of coming out to the mound. But I'm sure he's thinking, hey, Nolan Ryan beat up Rob Maturin. Maybe I won't go out against this guy. And so I kind of come off the mound, and I'm not really a fighter, but I'm all fired up, and everyone's yelling at each other and stuff, and he goes to first. I get out of the inning, and I come in the dugout, and they're all laughing. And I go, what, what's so funny? They're like, oh, man, that guy had never done anything, but he's a black belt in karate, and we thought he might go out and fight you, and so we told you that. you know. And so it was a great lesson of like, okay, Baseball is still the same no matter where you are. If it's the first day you've played on a team with somebody, there's some knucklehead that's going to try to bust your chops and do something crazy. Do you remember his name by any chance? I don't. I don't remember his name. I need to look it up, but um, the, the manager of that team was Terry Kennedy, and I see him around a lot. I just saw Terry downstairs earlier, so if you run into him, you might have to ask him who that was. <laughs> um, I read that uh, one of the games that you pitched your dad – was able to make it probably because of the strike and he's in the bullpen because he didn't want to well he was distract. retired so oh, he, he, retired, he didn't okay. 93 was his last year because everybody was talking about the strike coming and he obviously didn't want to be a part of that and he had had an injury but he came to one game in hudson valley and was down in the bullpen and it it was it was great for him to get to see me play you know 94 was a really good year for me uh, i was one of our starters i you know kind of i was five and five and had an era it was in the top 10 in the league and so it was a really fun season <clears throat> for me. Um, the next year in 95, I, I put that I wouldn't cross as a strike breaker um, because I couldn't with everything that had happened with my dad. And so I ended up not really getting to pitch at all in spring training. I ended up shagging balls on the backfield. And then when we broke and the strike was over and I went to uh, Charleston, South Carolina, I got off to a terrible start. And I ended up the year 0-10 in two different spots. And really was kind of the end of my playing career. But the, the thing about minor league baseball was I ended up getting such an appreciation for how hard it is to be a major leaguer from having tried to do it myself. I had an appreciation before of how great these guys are. But moving up several levels of A-ball and eventually being in double-A spring training and just seeing, like, you know, in college, you're playing guys 18 to 22, but in pro ball, you're playing guys 17 to 40, you know, and there's a ton of talent, and it's really, really hard, and I think it's made me a better manager of people today understanding how hard it is to play this game. So earlier you mentioned how you were working a little bit on the Texas Rangers broadcast and then you have this idea. when you, uh, From what I read, you go to your dad and you say, I got this idea, right? I want to bring minor league baseball to Central Texas. Tell us about that conversation and what your dad's initial reaction is and how you get started with well, this. Well, so I was working for the Rangers, and I was up at the ballpark in Arlington, and I actually got married in college. So uh, my wife, Nicole, was finishing up her school at TCU, and I was working up at the ballpark, and I came home and I go, hey, I like had this epiphany tonight. Let's go back to Austin and let's, let's start a professional baseball team. And she was like, awesome, sounds great. And she just went back to bed like that was it. Like, no, you know, boy, that's going to be a big deal. or I mean, nothing. Like, okay, great. And I laughed. So I call my dad, and I'm like, hey, I go, here's what I'm thinking. And I kind of went through the whole thing with the Firebirds and having played. Because my first minor league game I ever went to was the one that I played in, in Hudson Valley. I'd never been to a minor league game. And, um, and he said, I'll tell you what, that sounds like a fun idea because he had got out of the game and everybody transitions hard, mm -hmm. whether you play a year in the minors or you play 27 years in the big leagues. And he said, why don't you visit with Don Sanders? Don was one of the minority owners with the Astros, and he had recently sold out. And so you ended up having three guys, you know, myself, Young, Energy, it's my idea, my dad, Nolan Ryan, who is out of the game but would love to stay connected to baseball, and Don Sanders, a guy that's been an owner of minor or major league teams, but is out now and doesn't want to get out of the game. And so it was kind of the perfect recipe of three guys. They provided the capital. I provided the energy and the, and the vision, and the rest is history. So the, uh, the then mayor of Round Rock, Charlie Culpepper, I found this article in which he said the following. Reed and I worked extensively together. He was young and full of ambition. He was kind of green, but we got it done. Yeah, it's so true. Um, so I... I 
First thing I did was I called Jay Miller. Um, Jay had worked with the Rangers and was a longtime executive with us, is in Sugarland now. And I said, Jay, I want to go buy a team. Where do I get started? Because Jay really knew the minor league industry. And he said, hey, call this guy named Con Maloney. He's in Jackson, Mississippi, and he has the Astros AA team, and their, their club is kind of struggling financially. And so I called Con, and we ended up sort of striking a deal over a handshake. We met up at the ballpark in Arlington uh, in August of, you know, I guess what year was that? Probably 98, 97, 97 in August. And uh, he said, look, if you can put all this stuff together, I'll sell you the club at this price. And I said, okay, great. And so I went back to my dad and Don. I said, look, I got the guy. He's willing to put the club under contract. We've got an MOU. i got to find a city that we can partner with. And so I went to the mayor of Austin first, a guy named Kirk Watson. And he basically had a bunch of other things he was wanting to do. Didn't really have any desire to put the stadium back where the Braves had had a team in Austin in kind of the 50s and 60s. And it's the best piece of real estate in town. But he had the vision to build like a performing arts center there. And so that was kind of died. And then I went down to San Marcos, which is where Texas State is. Uh, They were kind of lukewarm. I went to Georgetown. They had a real interest, but it was kind of too far away. But Round Rock had voted on baseball one time before, and it failed. And so Charlie was like, look, this was very divisive in our city, but with you guys, if you're willing to go 50-50 on the money, private and public, then we think we can get it done. And that's what we did, and, you know, we just figured it out, like he said. I mean, we had a bunch of crazy stuff happen. None of these stadium deals go as planned. And uh, we just kept our eye on the prize, which was build, you know, a first-class major league facility on a minor league scale. And in a lot of ways – Dell Diamond changed, you know, at least in Texas, it, it was a kickoff to a renaissance of a ton of really great minor league stadiums. It's, it's one of my favorite to, to visit in the Pacific Coast League. I mean, Isotopes Park is awesome that I get to call that um, home. I wish that we went to uh, Round Rock more often. We used to go there uh, twice a year. Now we go there once every other year. Um, yeah, so you guys did a fabulous job. I mean, it's so much fun. Everything about it's first class. Um, the nickname, the Round Rock Express, Express, your dad's nickname was the Ryan Express. Tell us the story of how that nickname came to be. Yes, yeah, so we had to name the team contest, and we took all these, uh, all of these, and you learn things as you go, took all these suggestions, and then we ended up picking five that we could live with. Now, today you would probably never do that like, like the way we did it. <laughs> and then we put it out there to a vote with these people through the Austin American Statesman and Pizza Hut. For whatever reason, you go to Pizza Hut, there was no internet back then. <laughs> And you could fill out these ballots and drop them in the box. And it was just so overwhelming that the fans wanted it to be the Express because they wanted that tie-in with my dad. He had been an Astro. He had been a Ranger. He was an icon in the state of Texas. And folks wanted that tied with their community. And it was like 80% wanted the Express. Plus, there just happened to be these active train tracks right next to the stadium. So it kind of all lined up. And, you know, that's what we ended up going with. And everybody's been real happy with it. So originally the Round Rock Express are a double-A franchise, and then it moves up to triple-A, but it's not like a player moving up from double-A to triple-A. Uh, there's a lot of different uh, obstacles in order to do that. And you ended up uh, purchasing the team that was in Edmonton and moving Edmonton down to Round Rock. Explain some of the behind-the-scenes stuff of making that happen. Yeah, so we love the Texas League, and you know, part of me says, hey, I wish that we would have never moved from the Texas League because it's a really fun league. It's close. Everything's there. The players get to stay with the team. But at the same time, we realized we're in a market that's 2.5 million people and growing. This is really not a double-A market. This is a triple-A or one-day major league market. It's a bigger market. And looking at what's happened with the way teams can move from a, a bigger city to a smaller city, We felt like we don't want to sit here one day and have some team relocate to Round Rock, forcibly take our market, pay us, which they would have to do, but then we're out of the baseball business. And and we said, so, like, the only way we we can really protect ourselves is let's go get a AAA franchise. Well, in the AAA and AA, we'll get them both affiliated with the Astros. At the time, my dad was working with the Astros. And so we went out and we – same drill that we did with Con Maloney and Jackson – we actually bought the Edmonton Trappers um, from a guy named Hugh Campbell, who had actually, in an ironic twist of fate, been the head coach of the Houston Oilers when Moore and Moon was there. Okay. And they ended up having the, the football team up there and the baseball team were owned by the same group. So we cut this deal with Edmonton. They were having a lot of travel issues. Post-9-11, travel for minor leaguers getting in and out of Canada was becoming a real hassle. 
And so uh, we were able to move that, that team down, and we went to Corpus Christi and built a brand-new stadium called Waterburger Field. And uh, we had the two clubs up until I went to the Astros when we sold – uh, in 2013, the hooks to uh, Jim Crane and the ownership group of the Houston Astros. When you are des- um, designing a ballpark, um, both of them, both Dell Diamond and Whataburger Field, how much are you, okay, I've got this idea, I'm going to do a swimming pool, or I'm going to do this you know, uh, hospitality area. How much are you and, and some of the other key people involved in, what features can we do to really make the fan experience the best? Well, what we did with both, the Dell Diamond and Waterburger Field, we tried to look at every single person's, you know, point of view. We didn't forget the players because we had a player's point of view, and we built clubhouses and facilities that at the time were unrivaled in minor league baseball. We also said, hey, we want to give fans a major league experience. So it was all, and it sounds goofy now because every stadium is like this, but we went all individual chairback seats with cup holders. Nobody was doing that. You know, no bleachers. A lot of minor league teams had bleachers. We put the first video board in, high-def video board. We we were streaming games in Round Rock in 2000 when streaming – I mean, you know, because we were in a high-tech city. Now, it would lock up and it might pick up 15 <laughs> minutes later, you know, but we were doing it, and we literally just tried to be very best in class at every single thing we could do. Now, I will tell you, the push-pull is that – Money comes into play. You only have so many resources, and you got to allocate those properly. So it becomes a challenge. But I've taken that experience of doing Dell Diamond, doing Waterburger Field. We recently, with the Astros, built a brand-new spring training facility in West Palm Beach, and I was involved with that. We're now building a brand-new facility in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and I've been involved with that. And even though both of those projects, at the end of the day, had other folks for the Astros that were running them, I tried to take the same philosophies and principles and overlay those with those two ballparks, and you'll notice they're both going to have 360-degree concourses. Mm-hmm. They both are going to have berms. Mm-hmm. They're both going to have great player access uh, or player facilities, but the fans are going to have access as both teams will walk across the field to get to their dugout. So there were a lot of themes that I put in each one of these stadiums that I thought was very important for the overall program of player, fan, staff, owner, the whole, the whole thing. So let's discuss transitioning from minor league baseball executive to major league baseball executive. This is rare. Players get promoted all the time. Coaches do, managers do, a few broadcasters do, maybe some PR people do. Now, the title, most of the people listening to this podcast will know this, but if, when you are a general manager of a minor league baseball team, you're not in charge of the players. You have nothing to do with player acquisition. You run the team. So when you are a minor league GM, but then you move to the major leagues to be the president of the Houston Astros, um, was that always the goal, or at what point did it become a goal for you? Well, it, it wasn't. It was never a goal, even up in, until I got offered the job. It really wasn't a goal. Um, so the transition that I had was we started Round Rock, and then my brother and I ended up starting a bank, and. We sold that bank, and then we took that money, and then we bought the Edmonton Club, and we went AAA. And then we started another bank, and we did, we, we've done a bunch of different things. So I was really an entrepreneur. I was not actively running the Round Rock Express. I had, we had a team president. We had a general manager. I was the CEO of our, in, in essence, our family company of businesses. Um, and so I met Jim Crane at uh, an event out at the Waste Management Open, and uh, got to know him a little bit. We had some mutual friends. Um, he had bid against my dad for the Rangers in bankruptcy. My dad had gone up in 2008 to be president of the Rangers and ended up putting a group together, buying it out of bankruptcy. And during that time, although I never worked for the Rangers with my dad, uh, I was involved in connecting him with people. I was involved with knowing what he was doing and sort of armchair quarterbacking. And so when Jim ended up buying the Astros in 2011 because he didn't get the Rangers. Uh, 2012 was his first season. People said, hey, this guy would be perfect to come in and, and, you know, work with you to create the atmosphere and and a lot of the things that he wanted to achieve. And so uh, he reached out to me and we started talking. And I looked at it as an opportunity to um, get to learn from Jim. He's been very successful in business. Get to sit at that table as a, you know the major league owners' meetings and, and be in those meetings and really affect the game in a positive way because when you're a major league president, you have a lot of power and you have a lot of say in the game. 
and some of the things that I hold dear to my heart, uh, especially the fans, because without them, none of us have jobs, uh, the long-term viability of our game, getting young people involved in our game, uh, new media, all of the things that you're, you're seeing us do, I felt like I've got to take this opportunity because it's my hometown, my hometown team, but also because it gives me a great opportunity to try to change some of the things within this industry. And so I thank Jim for the opportunity. It's been six great years. This will be my seventh season coming up, and we've already won a World Series, and we think we got a shot to, to go back again. Now, when you took over the team, this is the low point for the Astros. They're losing 100 games. That year, the team lost 111. Uh, there was an issue with getting the, all the uh, games on television, on all the different uh, satellite and cable. Um, there's a lot of resentment uh, for what's going on with the team when it's losing that much. Um, you had a really good thing going running these minor league baseball teams. Were you at all tempted to say, I don't know if I really want to set myself into such a, uh, such a tough situation with the Astros right now? Yeah, to be honest with you, uh, when Jim offered me the job, I, I actually turned him down because I had three little kids, and you know, I was like, look, I can't leave working for myself and my family to go work for somebody else. And I really wanted to, but I just felt like, look, I'm being selfish, and this is probably not what's best for me and my family. And so I told him no, and I ended up – I went home back to Austin, and for like two or three days I was kind of depressed, and my wife's like – what's wrong with you? And I'm like, oh, you know, I don't know. I'm just still torn about this decision. Whatever she goes, kind of like <laughs> the deal before she goes, let's move, take it. Who cares? Let's see if you want to do go. And I was like, okay, great. So we, I called Jim back and I said, look, I think I made a mistake turning this down. And, and he said, uh, well, yeah, I'd love to have you come on. And so when we won the world series in Los Angeles and my wife and I've been married 22 years now, like I've really not thought about that again. And here we are at this, like, we're all hugging, and my daughter, one of my daughters and my son is there, and we're crying. Everybody's excited. And my wife turns to me and goes, aren't you glad I told you to take this job now? <laughs> and I was like, yes, dear. Yes, thank you very much. But uh, that's our relationship. She's incredible. Did I read correctly that the first day of the, uh, on the job, you're dealing with a vendor who puts some snow cones on the ground of the bathroom while doing his business? Yeah, so this is crazy. You kind of see it all. And what's interesting is I, I brought a new approach where – I can manage people and be hands-off because you can't grow a bank and multiple teams, and we have a company called Nolan Ryan Beef and a lot of other stuff if you're going to try to micromanage every decision. But I also always got very actively involved, and it was almost like um, when we had a problem or uh, an issue, I felt like that's the greatest opportunity to try to step up and do something because if you handle it correctly – Folks will tell like 10 people. And so I get this call, very first day on the job, that um, I shouldn't say first day on the job, first home game, um, that this vendor for Airmark had gone into the restroom with snow cones, set them on the ground, and then you know did his business, got up, and was going to walk back out with them. Now, it had been reported, and so when he came out of the stall, there was a whole group of people there. We threw the snow cones away and fired the guy and everything else. But in this world of social media now, of course, everyone's got their phone out, and now we're dealing with you know news channels showing up and reporters and people putting the video, and it was on Jay Leno and all these other places. So uh, what's great is when that's your first day at uh, a home game, everything else is downhill from there. So it was easy to handle after that. Okay, so let's say that it's not a day where there's a catastrophe going on. There's not a trade. There's not a situation with the vendor. On a normal day when you're – involved running a minor league baseball team, what are like the, say, one or two main things that you're responsible, that you're worried about versus running a major league team, the one or two things that you're most uh, concerned about on a, just a normal day at the ballpark? They're the exact same job in a lot of ways. I tell people there's just more zeros and there's more people that care and you work two to three months more. And what I mean by that is in the minor leagues, you get 140 games. Maybe you have an exhibition game. In major leagues, play 162. You have 30 spring training games that you're responsible for at a ballpark that is off-site. And then if you go to the playoffs, you could go all the way for a month if you go to the World Series. So there's really no downtime at all. The only downtime is kind of between Christmas and New Year's. Uh, that's it. And so no two days are alike because it depends on you know what's going on, who's the dignitary, who are you playing, what's the crowd, is school in, is school out. All of these things that, that go into it. The one thing I will say that consumed my life was worrying about rain. That's such a stressful 
thing. And with Minute Maid Park, we just close the roof, and it's just so relaxing to know that you're going to play every single night and that you don't have to worry about are we going to be in the umpire's room with an angry manager and a team that has a getaway flight at you know 4:30 a.m. the next day and is not wanting to finish a ball game and you've got 10,000 people in the stands on a Friday night those are the kind of problems that I don't miss at all uh, it's funny you mentioned that because um, when I was getting ready to come to Las Vegas, I, ch- I checked the weather app on my phone just to see, okay, what's the weather going to be like, even though I'm going to be indoors at meetings this entire week. And I realized this is the first time that I've checked my this weather app in weeks, if not months, whereas during a baseball season, I check that thing five times a day constantly to see what's the weather like, what's you know what the rain situation is going to be, how hot's it going to be. Oh, yeah, that's right. That's, that's baseball life, constantly checking the weather. It, it just went away. It's incredible. It's great. Yeah, I never check it anymore. And then when we – are in the playoffs, you know, we've been in Boston the last couple of years, and Sam Kennedy's become a really good friend of mine, and he's stressing on all that. I'm just like, hey, bud, let me know whatever y'all figure out. I'll be sitting in the locker room here. What can major league teams learn from minor league baseball teams? Yeah, I think the talent and the uh, the enthusiasm and, and just the not being afraid to fail um, attitude that permeates minor league baseball is one that Major League Baseball is always trying to tap into. Um, there's some great talent in minor league baseball. Really the difference, and, and what I would say is a couple things. If someone's selling minor league baseball, you've got to work hard. I don't, you can be in a great city like Albuquerque or Round Rock or you know, wherever, but you have to work hard because people don't know who these players are a lot of times, or if they do, there's no guarantee they'll be there, that they won't be called up. And so you really have to sell the atmosphere, the environment, and all the fun that comes with it. On the major league side, it's a lot about winning. It's a lot about real estate. People want to sit close. They want to, where in the minor leagues, every seat's a great seat. In the major leagues, the real estate is a big part. And in the major leagues, the pricing and what we do with business analytics is right there with what teams are doing with baseball analytics today. Because so much of the dollar that you generate for your club, and I should say in the overall pie, your only variable is that dollar at the ballpark because most of the television deals are fixed, the national money is fixed. So that's your variable source of, of revenue. And you have to watch that very, very closely. And so what I tell folks are minor league baseball is full of really good generalists. They can wear two or three hats. You know, they can sell sponsorship, they can probably run the click effects machine, and they could probably book the travel for the, for the club. Um, they, they could even do the mound. You know, like they can do it all. But in Major League Baseball, I'm like the only generalist, and everybody else is a specialist. Uh, the PR team's a specialist. You know, the, the sales team's a specialist because there's so many people that watch what we do at the Major League level. There's so many fans it means so much to so many people and because the volume of attendance the number of games you just can't take your eye off the ball those people have to be on it like a laser and so that's the real difference but I think if there was anybody in a position like I was in and a job came open in the major leagues if they had the financial background because you remember I came from banking and all of the other businesses we had and was an owner and a founder that it's an easy transition because that job really prepared me for the one with the Astros. you got about five minutes left? i got yes. a few more questions for you. Um, you don't sit in a suite during games. You sit in, a, in the stands. How often do fans come up to you and either say something positive or negative about what's going on? All the time, nonstop. Is that, is that, do you sit in the stands because you want that or just because you're a baseball guy who wants to watch the game, or I guess maybe both? So, one, the best seat in the house is the dugout, and the next best seat is right behind the dugout. So that's where I like to sit. I, I've got seats right on the end of the dugout. I like to sit there for a couple of reasons. One, I can look in the dugout and see the manager, see the players. I can see the visiting team. I can hear everything going on in the stadium. My normal drill and I, I'm at every single home game. I think I missed four this year. I've tried to make sure I was there for kids activities and games that you know my son just graduated high school and was playing varsity baseball. So I missed four games this year at home. Um, my normal drill is I spend kind of innings one through column four to five sort of making a pass around the stadium white glove test seeing what's going on 
checking security lines, saying hello to people, interacting with the fans, checking on the sponsors, suite holders, ownership, whatever. You know, once I make the rounds and I've settled into my seat, in my role, I have to be able to speak to everything going on with the club. I'm not the general manager. Jeff Luno makes all of our decisions on the baseball operations front. But when I'm out speaking to Rotary clubs or interacting with sponsors or fans, they want to know about a play. Did you see, oh, what did you think of this or that? So I never take my eye off the game. Even in the early innings, I'm watching on a television. Um, and I watch every single game. But I like to be down there because that's the joy of being in the business that we're in. Um, the end of the day, I tell people baseball is about bringing joy to people's lives. That's what we do. And teams connect with fans um, through the way they play the game on the field, by the way they act off the field, by their personalities. And we're in the business of making emotional connections. The more emotional connections we can make between fan and player, the better our business is going to be. And that emotional connection with having somebody at the ballpark every night that they know is in management, that they know has the owner's ear, has the GM's ear, has the manager's ear, they're going to voice everything they like and everything they dislike. And it's good. And sometimes you have to just let stuff roll off your back. But if there are you know, prevailing themes, then you know, shame on me if I'm not addressing those. Today with social media, I also monitor social media all during the game. And folks know they can talk to me during the game, and they hit me up and wear me out. So <laughs> it, it's, I, I just think it's um, – I could sit in a suite and just worry about the P&L, but I don't think you're doing the job that the fans want by not being visible and active at the games. You've mentioned your kids. How is it that having three teenagers helps you understand kids these days and how to market to the next generation of fans? Um, that's a great question. I, I talk to them a lot um, and ask their opinion. And, you know, what's interesting is if you look at today's society, and I kind of use this a lot, I have a grandma who's 93. She writes me letters. Um, my mom emails me for whatever reason. My wife texts me, and my daughters say stuff to me on social media. So out of my four sets of women in my life, you know, they're all communicating to me in a different way. And that's kind of how we are with our fans today. Uh, you know, there are people, it, it, just if you look at the Astros today, we have over a million, you know, it's like I want to say a million two to a million four Facebook followers and Twitter followers. And we're like 800,000 Instagram followers. Well, those people are looking at us all day long. So we have to provide them with great content. We have to feed that beast. We've worked hard to get them. You know, and I think how hard it was in the minor leagues to get 10,000 followers, to get 50,000 followers. These people want content. So we have to create content that is engaging our fans, that they want to share, that they want to pass on, that they want to buy from. And so that's a whole different world versus the world of the people that are coming in the ballpark that we're entertaining is a whole different world versus the people that are watching on TV. So... We're always constantly checking in all of these different age groups, and my kids in a lot of ways are kind of the test, test group for the teens. Were your kids named after any baseball players, or were they just named, uh, had nothing to do with baseball? No, they, there's some baseball tie in there. So when my, uh, my son's named Jackson because we bought the first club in Jackson, Mississippi, and then my daughter's named Victoria. Um, now, my wife and I like those two names uh, anyway, um, Victoria was where the club was in Jackson before it left. So it was in Victoria, Texas, went to Jackson, and came back to Round Rock. So there was some meaning there. Um, and then my last daughter, Ella, is named after my wife's grandma, who's an awesome lady, and so that we named her Ella. Okay, I love it. Uh, for Jackson, he was born with cerebral palsy, which affects muscle tone and posture on the right side of his body. Uh, still was able to play Little League Baseball. Explain the, uh, I read about this Velcro grip that he was able to use so that he could still pitch. Yeah, actually, Chris Almanderas, who's the president of the Express, uh, we got to know each other through coaching Little League Baseball. And so Jackson has cerebral palsy. He's hemiplegic, which means the right side of his body is affected. Uh, he doesn't have any fine motor skills in the right side of his body. Um, so he couldn't put a glove on his right hand, but his left side is fine. And so he could throw, and then he would put a glove on his left hand, and he'd catch it, and then he'd stick it under his arm, pull it off, and throw. Like Jim Abbott. Like Jim Abbott. So he could play baseball, and he'd hit one hand, and you know he could bunt and take walks and all of that. 
Well, when we got to a little bit higher level of like little league, coaches and people be like, whoa, whoa, he can't pitch without a glove because I'd have him play without a glove because proper mechanics is you point your glove hand to where you're throwing, not hold it against your side. And they were not going to let us let him pitch without a glove on the field. So we ended up having a guy on our team. It was really, you know, serendipity that he was in medical sales and he brought us this big box of all this stuff. And Chris and I started tinkering with it and slowly kind of redneck engineered this glove that had Velcro on the inside and had a wrap of Velcro on his hand, his right hand, which is more like balled up like a fist all the time. And then he would throw the ball, he'd take the glove, rip it off, you know, the Velcro and feel his position and, you know, go on about his business. And he's playing today in college at a school called Mary Harden Baylor. And he was a two-year varsity letterman uh, at Second Baptist School in Houston. And I, I tell people Jackson has done a great job with uh, what God gave him. Um, he's not going to be the first pick in the draft, but he throws a ton of strikes and he's left-handed. And, you know, as long as he doesn't walk people, everybody's got a spot for a soft-tossing lefty that throws strikes with a curveball. As much as he's obsessed with baseball, when do you put him, uh, all right, time to go scout somebody, right? Like, when, when, yeah, how does he, what's you know, he wants to be in baseball ops, which is great. Um, you know, I just always wanted to be around the game and promote the game because I love the game. But he really is into, you know, scouting and player development. And we'll see. He's going to work in Round Rock this summer. Uh, you know, he'll be going to school and probably starting to play some summer ball if he continues to, to play at a high level. And I don't know. We'll see when he gets into that. But he probably will. Let me end this in a similar way that I started. At the beginning, I asked you, when did you realize that your dad was a big deal? When did your kids realize that their grandfather was a big deal? Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think they probably knew growing up because people would, you know, they'd always kind of give you the wedge buster. You're having dinner and they just come and, you know, break up your, your party in the middle of your dinner and ask for an autograph or a photo or whatever. But... One of my favorite stories was there was a kid at, at my kid's school when we were living in Austin who came, heard my dad was at the house and came over and he had a baseball card and he meets my dad and he looks at him and he looks at the card and he looks at him and he goes, you're not Nolan Ryan, you're a grandpa. <laughs> and he walked away. So, you know, you never know. Don't get too big for your britches. Somebody will be there to bust your chops. So did the kids ever look at, like, YouTube or uh, VHS or the famous fight with Robin Ventura or blood on Grandpa's uh, mouth? Is he still on the mound pitching? Oh, well, I mean, look, they've seen it all because they grew up in Round Rock, going to the game. You know, my kids were doing 50 games a year. I mean, I took them to work with me every day. They literally grew up in Del Diamond. Um, then, you know, he owns the Rangers, and they're at all the Ranger games, and then I'm president of the Astros. So my kids have been at the ballpark their entire lives and when you're in texas and you're with their astro astros or the rangers and you're nolan ryan's grandkid and there's statues of them all over the place they they knew pretty early that he was something special do they think that their dad is a big deal no not at all <laughs> not at all all right reed well i think you're a big deal this was awesome uh thanks so much for joining me man i really enjoyed it all right josh keep up the good work thank you this is life around the seams 